live stream as we find our way here to Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to begin here in verse 18. Hear now the word of God. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Our Father, we are thankful for your word this morning that we can now set our hearts and mind upon. We pray that you would help us to understand this passage, perhaps a difficult passage for us to fully appreciate, that we might gain in our knowledge of it. You have recorded it for us, and so we pray that you would speak to us, and that we would come humbly longing to hear from our great God, that we would pray even now in our own hearts, as our brother prayed long ago, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We long to hear from God today. We pray that we would do so, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in the year 1241, in the city Krakow in Poland, happened in that day to be one of the most powerful uh, merchant cities in all of Europe, situated on trade routes that crossed the continent. It was grand and opulent, and therefore drew the unwanted attention of Genghis Khan, and his horde of Mongols who were sweeping the east. One night as the Mongols, or the Tartars as the English called them, quietly hid among the forest outside of Krakow, they were spotted by a lone sentry who watched from the tower of St. Mary's Cathedral some 260 feet high. In response, this sentry blew his bugle warning the sleeping city. The Mongol horde, of course, in haste, wanted to stop that warning, and so they, they fired a flurry of arrows, one of them catching the bugler in the neck, suddenly ending his warning call. But it was too late for the Mongols, that is. The, the warning was heard, the city alerted, the defenses were raised, and the Mongols were forced to retreat as the gates of the city were closed. It's interesting to note that to this very day, from that great steeple of St. Mary's Cathedral, a bugler blows his horn every hour on the hour. The last note of which is always muted and broken, as if something, some tragedy had fallen upon him. For 800 years, there has been a continuous commemoration, hourly commemoration, of the trumpeter who summoned his people to defend their city against the invaders. Well, the text before us, I think, is in many ways also an ancient warning. It is Paul sounding the notes, raising the alarm of coming invaders into the very walls of the church. In Colossians in particular, they are being besieged by a distortion of Christianity. I would suggest that perhaps we are as well. 
and that it would do us good to hear this call to arms, that this would be in some way a reaffirmation in our hearts, that we would defend our faith and, and of course, go on and defend the, the faith of those we love. Paul wants us to defend it from three distortions here in these latter verses in the book of Colossians. We saw one of those distortions last time, the distortion of legalism. I remind you, Paul wrote in verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Of course, we considered those, that passage earlier uh, a few weeks ago. Well, Paul uh, goes on here at the end of Colossians 2 to add two additional distortions to Christianity, which we'll consider today. The first we might call mysticism, and the second we might call asceticism. And I'll, I'll define those terms. I was working with my children through this passage last night, and they were unaware of what those terms mean. Maybe you are as well. We'll work our way through it. But I will tell you that both of these ideas, mysticism and asceticism, in Paul's day, and I think continue in our day, promise, hold out a promise to Christians of this great spiritual advance. And yet, as we'll see, both are a sham. For all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ as we have discovered in chapter 2 and verse 3. So we'll consider them in turn. So we begin by thinking about the dangers of mysticism this morning. Uh, you note verse 18, Paul says, Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. You see, people are having evidently in Colossians, in Colossae, these supernatural experiences, and they are promoting them as a way to further their Christian faith. And so you could, I think, very, ima- uh, very easily imagine them arguing, listen, you have Jesus, that's wonderful, good for you. But there are spiritual experiences that you are missing. There are additional blessings that God wants to pour out upon you. These wonderful experiences which would move you along the path and in the freedom of Christ and the fullness of Christ. And we are actually offering you the, the full keys of the Christian life. You got a, you got a half Half Christian life, we want to give you the full Christian life. And of course, when people make such arguments, as they do today, I, I trust many of you are aware of that, they make the rest of us feel rather inadequate, don't they? And then we, we begin to think, well, my experience with God must be somewhat lacking. I, in fact, I don't have anything like this. I don't have these, uh, you know, uh, uh, worship of angels or going on about visions, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, and so Paul says there in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. In other words, let no one cheat you out of your joy in Christ. Let no one rob you of your fellowship with with Jesus by calling it into question because you haven't had these experiences that they are describing. In fact, Paul describes the experiences with three different terms, doesn't he, there in verse 18. He says, uh, first of all, insisting on asceticism. Now, we're going to return to that in a moment. But asceticism is simply an extreme self-denial. Paul will call it in verse 23, a severity to the body. And so it might be that the asceticism in which they're encountering, it would be a prolonged fasting from food, or maybe a prolonged fasting from sleep. And that kind of self-abasement would lead to these, these ritualistic and these ecstatic experiences. And people continue this even day, even to this day, that it would lead to some kind of vision, they said, or some type of communion with angels. For he says, secondly, Don't let them insist on the worship of angels. Now let me ask you, Christian, is it a good idea to worship an angel? All you have to do is read the book of Revelation and find out whether we should worship angels. John the apostle tries to do it twice. And both times the angel says, what are you doing? Get on your feet. 
do not do that. Right? They rebuked John for that. And yet it seems to me that the Colossians, I mean, we return to this over and over again in our study of, uh, of this letter, that the, these spiritual beings are having such a, a large and, and oversized role in their personal faith, whether good spiritual beings or negative spiritual beings. We'll see them again in verse 20, I'm afraid. And so there, evidently there is some type of worship of angels taking place. We actually know three centuries later in a, a synod, which a synod is simply just a gathering of, of clergymen to make theological decisions. A synod of Laodicea in the fourth century, I quote just a line from it, they, it forbade the offering of prayer to angels. Now, Laodicea is just 12 miles away from Colossae. So you only forbid something, by the way, uh, if, if it's happening. And so there seems to be some type of prayer happening to the angels. We know from archaeology that there was a chapel to the angel Michael in this area. And so this seems to be a problem for them, the worship of angels. Now, when Paul says the worship of angels, I don't think he probably means that they're getting together and they're singing songs to angels. It's like we praise God in song just a moment ago. I think most likely what's taking place is that they are seeking help from angels in time of need. And perhaps they might have thought, as some do, you know, I can't come to Jesus directly. I mean, Jesus is obviously he's running the universe. He's rather busy fellow. You know, so, you know, who am I after all? So I, I'll, I'll seek an angel, and the angel will come and, and help me. And there are some Christian traditions that continue this today. They say, I won't bother Jesus. I'll, I'll pray to this saint, and the saint will come help me, you know, get from A to B or help me sell my house or whatever it is. I'll, I'll talk to Jesus' mom, but I, I, I won't talk to Jesus. And there are people who continue to approach these uh, uh, these individuals in heaven rather than approaching God. Now, of course, those who do so will tell you, well, they're not worshiping these saints. They're venerating the saints. This is a veneration. I would suggest to you that's a distinction without a difference. I mean, you, you call it what you want. You call it worshiping. You call it veneration. Are you praying to them? Are you seeking their help? Are you depending upon them? Right? I, that sounds like worship to me. And I think that's exactly what's taking place here in Colossae. It is interesting to me that uh, we find this actually, this, this, this uh, preoccupation with angels seems to be a rather uh, uh, reoccurring theme in American Christianity. I, I trust Western Christianity. I do find it uh, fascinating that the, 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 the details that we receive about angels in the Bible seems to be relatively infrequent. And yes, you, you walk into a Christian bookstore and uh, it doesn't seem like it's infrequent at all. You got calendars of angels and you got books of angels and you got pictures of angels and people have little figurines of angels and there seems to be angels seem to be everywhere uh angels are of course even on television and we 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 like to put angels on tv my children just uh just a few months ago were watching a christmas story where dolly parton was an angel okay i don't know if that's how angels usually dress but uh, it was rather interesting um you know, uh, what one individual says, well, angels seem more accessible and less demanding than God. Perhaps that's why we're so fascinated with them. I was uh, interested to find an interview by a, a movie writer and director, a woman named Nora Ephraim. I hope I'm E-P-H-R-O-N. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Nora Ephraim. She was the uh, director of a movie called Michael. And I quote the subtitle, A Story of a Flawed Angel Who Brings Together Star-Crossed Lovers. By the way, I'm not commending this movie to you. I haven't watched it. Um, but uh, she writes in this, or she explains in this interview, quote, everyone wants to believe God notices you, that he notices the details. The horrible truth is that he doesn't notice. He's got more important things to do. But angels do notice. You know, 
they make the tow truck come when you have a flat tire. It seems to me that's why we have this pre preoccupation with angels. Angels make no claims on us. They're just there to help us. They're just here to get us out of a jam. They're just here to make the tow truck come and whatever uh, need we might have for that day. It is interesting, by the way, if you actually read the account of the angelic activity in the Bible, um, you, we kind of see a different picture, don't we? Uh, we? We read in Genesis, of course, that there's angels who are participating in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We, we find out that it is the angel of death who strikes down the firstborn in Egypt. We know that it was an angel who killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in just one night. If you want to know about the role of angels, read the book of, once again, the book of Revelation. You will see that they're not as cuddly as you might have originally thought. Of course, that's not what we think when we think of angels. Right? We don't think of angels primarily dealing with the injustices in this world. They're there to help. They're there to keep bad things away and give us what we want without asking for too much sacrifice. That's the mentality that we have. I will, by the way, just want to uh, put a period on this. I do want to note the movie director is wrong. No offense to Miss Ephraim, but God does notice the detail. Our Lord Jesus says two sparrows are sold for a penny. In fact, in other words, they're cheap. And not one falls to the, father, falls to the ground apart from the will of my father. Well, they seem to be going on and on about angels, as we see many today. And then lastly, you notice this uh, kind of getting to the, the, the head of the matter. It says, going on in detail about visions. Visions. Going on in detail about visions. I had this dream. Let me tell you about this dream. I had this encounter. Let me tell you about this encounter. And on and on. Now, I purposely read for you this morning a, an account of a Muslim background believer who had a dream. And I believe these things are happening. I believe that I, I hear over and over and over again, either they're all lying or it's actually happening, that there seems to be a reoccurring activity in the Muslim world of individuals having a dream of a man in white who calls for them. He never tells them the gospel, by the way, because that's not the role of the dream. It's the role of you and I and other Christians. I know of uh, uh, a seminary president in, uh, in Palestine. So you might not think of Christians in Palestine, but they are there. He's uh, in Bethlehem. He's a seminary president. He actually takes an ad out in the paper. If you see a man, if you dream about a man dressed in white, call this number. And he says he has about two or three people calling a month saying, I'm having a dream about a man in white. Can you tell me about him? I think these things are happening. So I am not in any way, please don't understand this, dismissing that God works through this way. I believe he does. But it seems to be a rather strong preoccupation that's taking place in this area. They get into this trance, they get some type of communion with angels, and, and on and on they go, and they have this vision. And this vision, uh, the, these, these experiences, these mystical interactions, these, they, they claim, well, this is where the realfulness is found with God. And how sad for you that you, you haven't had these wonderful experiences and, and these, these ecstatic encounters with God. Don't you want them? They seem to be offering. And this is, this is happening in our day. This is happening around the world. You, people go to conferences and a woman says, you know, well, the Lord sat on my couch and he told me this. Or this man says, and, you know, angel visits me frequently and he writes a book. Or you have Sarah Young and her Jesus calling uh, a book. And I just sit down there with my pen and God kind of comes and tells me what I'm supposed to write and all the rest. You got a, another guy who says, I went to heaven, I came back, and, and let me tell you about what I experienced. And it's on and on and on. And I would suggest to you, if we actually needed this information, then we would have it in Scripture. By the way, Paul actually did go to heaven and came back. 
And it's interesting to me that he did not decide to write a book about it. Nor did he encourage you to try to do it as well. In fact, he writes rather cryptically, does he not? I know a man who 14 years ago was seized by Christ and taken into paradise. There he heard the unspeakable spoken, but was forbidden to tell what he heard. In fact, it is God who warns us of people who come going on and on about visions in Jeremiah 23. We read, they say, listen to the dream I had from God last night. And then they proceed to tell lies in my name. So, so we have these individuals who are seeking after these mystical experiences. Now, again, I, I want to be clear that, that, that I, uh, it's not inappropriate to have spiritual experiences with God. It's not inappropriate. It's not bad to have a personal. It's actually good to have a personal encounter with God that can be very impactful in your life. And I trust that we could share about what God has done in our life. I, I will testify in 1991, I heard the gospel and I had a powerful experience of terror and conviction of truth. I could tell you in, in the year 2004, I experienced a powerful interaction with God at midnight amongst a, a, um, a number of brothers and sisters, a, an impact that I will never forget for the rest of my life. I could tell you in 2009, I was in my office, I was reading the Bible, I became so overcome by the glory of God, I literally had to push the Bible away and began to weep and pray, and I probably prayed consecutively longer than I had in my entire life. I've had those experiences. I've had other experiences like that. I'm thankful for them. I hope and, and trust that you might have had those experiences as well. But the problem comes is when we begin to make our Christian life dependent upon them. And we begin to, I just need to get back to that place. I need to seek after them as if they are the norm for our Christian life. My brothers and sisters, rather than seeking experiences, we are to seek Christ. And we are to do so through the ordinary means of grace that are described to us in God's word. It's not I had this experience and everything's great, or I haven't had an experience and everything's awful. It, 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 we don't come looking for experiences. And, and I would say, in particular, we don't come on Sunday morning looking for an experience. Now, you might have one and praise God for it. But we don't come thinking, okay, well, you know, was I moved by that song? Or, or did the, the, the sermon make me cry? Or did I get a little tingle? Or whatever it might be. And we're not, that's not what we're coming to do. God is calling his people together, redeemed by the blood of Christ, to gather to bring their worship to him. It's not about what, I, what, I, what experience I have. Am I, the question is, am I praising God faithfully? Was God's word taught clearly and accurately? That's what we need to be asking. And so we are to seek God in the way in which scripture instructs us to seek him. And how does Christ tell us to grow in our faith? Well, he tells us, abide in me and I abide in you and live a life of prayer and obedience and service. And yet there's so many looking for these shortcuts, these mystical experiences, these personal encounters. I would suggest to you they're not only unbiblical to seek after them in this way, it's actually harmful. For what does Paul say at the end of verse 18? That these individuals are puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Paul's first objection is that these experiences lead to conceit. They're puffed up, right? He says... Uh, they're, they're, they're without reason. They lack reason. You can't reason with them, in other words. They think they're the spiritual elite. And Paul says, rather than being spiritual, they actually lead them in the flesh. And so what does he say here in 
They're puffed up by their sensuous mind, literally their mind of the, the flesh. They're, they, they feel the, like uh, they're, they're getting a big head, if you will. They're puffed up in arrogance. Ezekiel, is interesting to note, had a vision of God. And rather than being puffed up, he fell down with his face in the dirt and didn't speak for the next seven days. It didn't lead to arrogance at all, rather lead to self-deprecation of his own sin. And yet there are others who say, no, this is what we need to have, and we need to seek after these things. And Paul says when they get them, they get, they get a big head because of it, and their big head actually cuts them off from the real head, as we read in verse 19, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. You see, the irony continues. Paul says, rather, these experiences haven't brought them nearer to God. He's actually cutting them off from God. They're severing themselves from the head, which is Christ. And so all the claims of, of spiritual advance and intimacy are a facade. They're actually severing themselves from the source of spiritual growth, namely, namely Jesus. Paul, therefore, warns us from this excessive interest in seeking after these experiences and these blessings. And so I, I wonder, I just by way of application before we move on, Christian, are, what experiences, if any, do you equate with spiritual fullness or spiritual growth? Well, I mean, what are, what are you chasing after? I've been reading, uh, meeting with my teenagers every other week for breakfast. and We have been reading uh, C.S. Lewis' screw tape letters together uh, and discussing that over uh, a good meal. And I don't, most of you are probably aware of, of this book. It's a fictional account, uh, a fictional series of letters from a demon named Screwtape to a subordinate demon on how to tempt humanity. Again, this is fiction, just so you know. But I found it interesting that the demon Screwtape says in one of his letters, teach them to estimate the value of each prayer by their success in producing the desired feeling." Did you catch that? Teach them to value the success of their prayer by the success in producing the desired feeling. In other words, this prayer didn't really work because it didn't produce a feeling in me. I, I, I wasn't actually praying to God. I wasn't drawing closer because I didn't get the experience that I was looking for. We should avoid such thoughts. Paul actually counseled us a different way, and I think a very important passage here in Colossians 2 and verse 6, we considered a number of weeks ago, but I remind you, I think it's the great hinge verse in this book, as you receive Christ Jesus in Lord, just as you receive Christ, so walk in him, right? So you walk with Jesus the same way you receive Jesus, by faith. In other words, the growth in which we experience is this slow growth by which God has told us we, we grow by listening to sermon week after week. We grow by discussing the word of God in our community groups and confessing our sin to our friends and reading our scripture together and, and praying in the morning. We grow by serving others and forgiving a brother and repenting of transgression. We grow by taking risks for the kingdom and sharing the gospel. Paul calls it there at the end of verse 19 uh, he, that we grow with a growth that is from God. And most of the time in this growth, you're not going to notice. You're not going to notice your, your spiritual growth. It's going to be slow, sometimes monotonous. It's just walk with, with God. It, it's kind of like you watch your children. You don't really notice them growing. But when Mammy shows up once a year, she freaks out, right? It's like, oh, look how much you've grown, right? right? It's like, oh, really? I didn't even notice. Well, that's the Christian life. There's no shortcut. There's no diet pill for spiritual advance. There's no experience that's going to get you from A to Z in, in an afternoon. It is the, the work of walking with Jesus, being linked with Jesus, following after Jesus, being connected to the head, Paul says. 
And of course, if we're connected to the head, we are part of the body, which means we are in a local church. Look again at verse 19 before we move on to the, our last point this morning. He says, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, that's the church. Paul keeps referring back to the local church, doesn't he? The whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. And what we see over and over again in this book and the rest of scripture is that our growth as Christians is not simply a matter of our individualistic union with Jesus. It happens within the church. That we are only be connected to the head if we are joined together in the body. Knitted together, he says. And so we don't grow in our Christian life simply an isolated contemplation of religious truth. That is not the biblical way. It's never been the biblical way from the very beginning. He has always had a people living together. And we, we grow as we bind ourselves together and knit ourselves together in service and love and counsel, forming a real Christian community. I, I, I like to frequent a, a gym, believe it or not. I, I go there a number of times a week, and I always find it interesting because the gym is full of people who are all seeking to do the same thing. We all have certain health goals, and we're all there because we're health conscious, and we're, we want to make advances in these areas, and yet there's no interaction whatsoever. I've been going to the gym for two years. I probably, I try to talk to people, but they have no interest. We all got our headphones on, and, and we're all, all seeking the same thing, but there's no, no community whatsoever in the gym. The church is not to be the gym where we all have kind of spiritual health goals. We all show up once a week, and we don't interact with each other. We're all just kind of lo looking for our own thing. No, Paul says we are knit together like a body, like your hand is knit to your arm. So you're knit to the person next to you, and it's in that context of the church that we receive this growth that is from God. And so we are warned, are we not, from the dangers of mysticism. Paul turns secondly and lastly to the dangers of asceticism. Asceticism. Note verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. This is a warning of asceticism. I'll use that word once again there in verse 23. Asceticism, as I've already explained, is the denial of physical needs or physical pleasures. So asceticism will be a denial of food, denial of drink, denial of sleep. We see it as a denial of marriage, denial of sexual intimacy, a denial of parenthood. Is denial, denying yourself good things in order to try to make some spiritual advance. Now Paul says, somewhat confusingly in verse 20, that you've died to the elemental spirits of the world. Again, he's once again going back, referring to angelic beings. And because you've died to these elemental spirits, don't give yourself to this ascetic, ascetic life. And so we just have to guess here what this means. And it seems what Paul is suggesting is that these individuals think in, they will appease these spiritual beings, these angels perhaps, and therefore perhaps get their aid if they restrict themselves from physical pleasures. So the, the ascetic, as, uh, this ascetic life is how you live in harmony with the spiritual forces. Which is why Paul, if you remember in, in verse 15, says Jesus has disarmed these spiritual forces. So we don't need to to live our life um, worried about them or accounting for them in, really in any way. And so he, he says, you've died to them. You don't need to live this way. And certainly we should not live 
in a way that practices this severity to the body. He'll use that phrase there if you look in verse 23, this severity to the body, harming our body. So evidently there are Christians here in in Colossae who are denying themselves of physical pleasure or physical needs in order to reach this higher spiritual plane, in order to have victory over the flesh. And we actually have a vast history in the Christian church of this. This began to be a a major movement in the 4th century in the Christian church in what was called the monastic movement, um, sometimes called the Desert Fathers. These these monks would begin to flee to the desert in order to deny themselves physical pleasure to make spiritual advance. One, One church father named Jerome would write about the Desert Fathers, and he described a monk who for 30 years lived exclusively on a small portion of barley bread and muddy water. Another lived in a hole and never ate more than five figs a day. Another cut his hair only on Easter Sunday, never washed or changed his clothes until they fell to pieces. Some of you are thinking that sounds like your children, right? You didn't know you had a monk living in your house. He writes, a Macarius who slept in a marsh and exposed his naked body to the sting of venomous flies, he writes a Basaria who for 40 days and 40 nights lived in the middle of thorn bushes and for 40 years never lied down when he slept. Perhaps the most famous of the Desert Fathers was a man named Simeon, sometimes called Simeon the Stylite. Near 423, he moved out to the desert uh, in order to flee from his, the sin in his heart. At least that is his idea. He found a ruin, and, and in this ruined city, he discovered a pillar. The pillar was about 10 feet high. He climbed the pillar, sat on top of the pillar, and did not come down for the next six years. He then thought, well, this pillar isn't quite high enough. Perhaps I'm not close to God enough. So he finally came down from the pillar and built himself a new pillar. This one's 60 feet high. On top of a 60-foot-high pillar, he built a three-by-three-foot platform. He climbed up to the top of that pillar and did not return to the earth for 37 years. And so evidently, living on a pillar in a desert is this man's way of separating himself from sin, of separating himself in service of God. Now, of course, this is pretty extreme, isn't it? I trust none of you will be running around naked this afternoon, you know, exposing yourself to bee stings. I hope. (laughs) I'm looking at some of my children over there. Okay. (laughs) One writer asked, is there child care in the desert? Right? In other words, it doesn't seem like we all can flee to the desert and live this godly life. Yet, I, I would suggest such practices continue today, though perhaps in a less extreme form. I once again refer to some Christian traditions who, which require their leaders to be celibate, forbidding them marriage. It's evidently celibacy, restricting yourself from this wonderful gift of God, marriage, children, etc., makes you more spiritual in some sense. Others restrain from food and drink or other permissible activities in order to subdue the flesh. There are others, sadly, who hurt themselves in order to try to conquer sin. I think of the great Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer. Before his conversion, after sinful thoughts, he would literally whip himself. He would lie, uh, this monk in Germany, he would lie not in his bed, he would not sleep in his bed, he would sleep on the stone floor without any blankets in the middle of German winters in order to be harm his body in order to somehow conquer the sin that he was so plagued by. And perhaps there's an attraction here. I mean, this this will be the attraction. If I can conquer sin, 
If, if someone tells you this, you can conquer sin, you can conquer those sinful thoughts or desires, you can overcome temptation by little harm to your body, you might be so plagued by that sin, you might think it worth it. And so in case you do, Paul gives us three reasons why, why self-harm or why asceticism is wrong, is dangerous. First of all, he says the uh, ascetic life denies God's goodness. It denies God's goodness. You notice everything's in the negative there in verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. D deprive yourself of these things. Now, not, not depriving yourself of sin. There is a no in Christianity. There are things we are not to do. There are things we are not to touch, most certainly. But he's not saying that. He's saying, they're, they're saying deprive yourself of the spiritual gifts. He, uh, excuse me, the spirit, yes, the, the gifts in which God gives us. Perhaps he defines them there in verse 22, referring to the things that all perish as used. Maybe this is a, primarily a reference to food. It perishes, after all, when it is used. He's saying these people are telling you to deny this food or deny yourself uh, this drink, to deprive yourself of God's gifts. And, I, and uh, I just want to let you know, to, to actually withhold yourself from good things in which God has given you is not a sign of spiritual maturity. In fact, I think you are transforming uh, the, the biblical understanding of God as a gracious father in heaven who showers us daily with gifts and love and grace and long for our joy and, and our peace. He is a good father, and we're replacing him with a robed judge with a gavel in hand and a frown upon his face. In fact, Paul will write about ascetic, uh, these ascetic practices in uh, other books of Scripture. Uh, one of those is 1 Timothy 4. Notice what Paul says here. In the later days, some will devote themselves to deceitful spirits and embrace demonic teaching. So he says there's coming a day in which uh, people who, who are within the church are actually going to give themselves to demonic teaching. Well, that sounds pretty extreme, right? I mean, what, you, you, you start thinking about, you know, uh, chicken blood and, and the sacrifice of God. I mean, what is this demonic teaching in which he's talking about? Well, Joe Rigney in his book, uh, The Things of Earth, writes, what exactly would these false and demonic teachers say? Well, read the next phrase in 1 Timothy 4. Forbidding marriage and forbidding certain food. That's the demonic teaching. Why? Because he writes, in despising the gifts, we insult the giver. Because God made chicken fried steak. And Caesar salad and mashed potatoes and boiled lobster and dinner rolls and organic strawberries and Big Macs and fresh basil and Twinkies to be received with gratitude by those who embrace the truth. <laughs> Sounds like a Baptist, doesn't he? Every bit of it is good and none of it should be rejected provided it is received with thanksgiving, end quote. See, Christianity is not worldly, but it does enjoy the world in which God has made. I hope you understand the distinction. In fact, I think we should enjoy the world that God has made and the gifts he gives within it far more than those who do not love God and know the one who has actually given it to them. The first problem is this denies the goodness of God. Secondly, asceticism is based upon human tradition. For Paul writes here at the end of verse 22, according to human precepts and teaching. In other words, it does not have God's authority. It's not what God said to do. In fact, you read the life of Jesus, he's constantly encountering that, it seems. The prominent place that we find is in Mark 7, when he tells the Pharisees, you have let go the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. You've walked away from what God says, and you're creating these own 
uh, traditions in which you are making up. Uh, Paul calls it there in verse 23, self-made religion. You're making up your own religion here. And so I would simply just suggest, let's actually take the religion in which God has made. Thirdly, asceticism doesn't work. It's useless. So if you think you can control sinful impulses through rigorous religious self-denial, you are going to be very disappointed. For Paul writes in verse 23, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Now that's interesting. They have an appearance of wisdom in doing what? In promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now Paul says, hey, this looks wise. This looks religious. Right? If, if I were to go out in the street and I had two pictures, I had a picture of a, of a Buddhist monk and I had a picture of Josh Miller, right? Kind of, kind of goofy, maybe wearing soccer cleats or something like that, right? And I asked the man on the street, I said, which one appears more religious to you? Okay, we got Buddhist monk versus Baptist preacher. Well, I think it's, the answer is going to be clear. Well, the, the Buddhist monk. Well, he looks more religious. There's an, there's an appearance of spirituality there, isn't there? Right? He, he, he looks like he has some discipline and devotion. That appears to have some kind of religious wisdom. Well, I will tell you what you already know, that appearances can be deceiving. Paul says this looks like it is wise. It has an appearance of wisdom. But it actually, he says, has no value. You see that in the verse at the verse, verse 23, it's useless. It cannot stop the indulgence of the flesh. Now, we might ask why. why. Why does denying yourself these things not stop our sinful tendencies? Well, we know, of course, don't you? I might, in fact, I asked my seven-year-old last night, and she knew. Right? Because the problem of sin is not out there. It's in here. My heart often, I confess to you even now, my heart often loves me more than God. My, my mind often believes the promise of sin offers more pleasure than obedience to God. And no restriction of God's gifts is going to really change what my heart loves. No law is going to change what I desire. In fact, Jesus himself, again in that Mark 7 passage, says there is nothing outside a person that can defile him. He's actually talking about eating foods. This is when Jesus declares all foods clean. He says nothing outside a person can defile him, but whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. For out of the heart of man, now listen, what does Jesus think about the heart of man? Is it all golden and, you know, rainbows and sunshine down in that heart? Out of the heart of man, according to Jesus, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and indeed foolishness. All these evil things come from within. So you restrict everything you want. You deny yourself this food. You, 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 you live on top of that pole or in the midst of a bramble bush or whatever you do want to do. The enemy is still with you. The enemy is still in you. Perhaps this was chiefly seen in one of those desert fathers, a man named John Chrysostom. John, as a young man, was grieved by his lustful tendencies. He went to his pastor and asked, I, I lust all the time. What can I do about it? His pastor gave him the awful counsel to go live in a desert with a hermit. And so this young man moved to a desert and he lived with this hermit for four years, you are not surprised to hear that he still struggled with lust. And so then he asked the hermit, what should I do? Well, the hermit found him a cave that was so small that he could not lie down in. 
And there John would live for the next two years in complete solitude. He had a little ledge where he could sit on, read his Bible. He would eat sparse food that was left for him. And so for two years, he, he, he lived that life. What were, so this is a very interesting experiment, isn't it? What, what are the results of that? Well, it is interesting to know John memorized the entire Bible, which I think is kind of cool. <laughs> I mean, if you walked up to John Chrysostom and said, tell me the Bible, he could start Genesis 1-1, go to Revelation, and give you every verse of it from memory. He also ruined his body. He lived in chronic, agonizing pain for the rest of his life. But, of course, the question, he's there because of lust, right? Well, John left that cave after two years, returns home, and you know what he saw? A woman. And what was the first thought he had about that woman? He lusted after her. His lust was completely unscathed by two years in a cave. Again, Joe Rigney, and I do recommend this, his book, The Things of Earth, if you could get through chapter 2 and 3. But Joe Rigney writes, To pursue holiness by stiff-arming created pleasures appears wise. Aesthetic religion and severity to the body may impress lots of people, but their value in promoting godliness is null. The reason should be obvious. Sin is not in the stuff. Sin resides in the human heart. We exchange indulgent sins for aesthetic ones, but rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic doesn't alter the ship's path. The flesh is still steering the boat, and a true course correction will require something more than a fundamental rejection of God's gift. Paul says it's utterly useless. In fact, I would suggest, I would even go beyond, it's actually worse because it not only is it incompetent in subduing the sin in our life, it actually gives rise to more. I think once again, we find ourselves, when we give ourselves to these practices, a place of pride and self-sufficiency. I think it feeds the flesh by starving it. And so we might once again ask, how can we have victory? How can we grow? Well, we know again and again from Colossians, we grow by continuing with Jesus. We do not need fantastical experiences. We need to walk with Jesus. We don't need man-made restrictions. We need to walk with Jesus. You need Christ. Your children need Christ. We need to delight in Christ and love Christ and seek after Christ. As you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue in him. So if you want to find the key to spiritual freedom, you want to find the key to spiritual fullness, you look nowhere else but Jesus. For he himself said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. To full. You may have come here today and you feel empty spiritually. You say, I'm looking for some new spiritual power. I want something more. I would tell you to come to Jesus. Abide in Christ. And find your fullness in him. We all must come to Christ. That's why he provides a way for fullness and freedom and does so through the cross. Perhaps you're here this morning as we close and you're not a Christian. Please understand, even as Pastor Cody reminded us this morning, that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe that he got up from the grave. And he did so three days after dying. And there he died upon the cross for our sin. And Jesus paying the debt that we owe God. And three days later, demonstrating that we too might have resurrection. We, might too, we too might have eternal life by rising from the dead. And now he calls for all people to repent of their sins and put their faith in him. You can be saved by Christ and find the freedom and fullness that we are all made for in Christ by trusting in him, even now as I pray. Father, we are thankful for your word and the encouragement that it is. I trust that uh, probably not a person here who's walked into this building today 
thinking, I really hope we talk about asceticism or mysticism. And yet in your sovereignty, this is what you have planned for us. This is what is written down in your word. So I do pray that you would speak to us and help us. Maybe you might even equip us to help others through this passage. And that we would understand that there really is no shortcut to finding the fullness and the freedom and the joy that we long for. That is found in Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And so will you help us to redouble our efforts in seeking after Jesus and abiding in Christ as he by his grace abides in us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.